If you're between the ages of four to eight, you're excused to kids' club. What do you do when you get caught? Maybe you stole a cookie. Maybe you cheated on a test. Maybe you even cheated on your taxes. What would you do if you got caught? Would you deny your sin? Would you own your sin? Would you pretend it didn't happen? What would you do if you got caught? As a child, my family lived in Edmond, Oklahoma for just one year. As I can recall, there was a huge creek that ran between, ran through our backyard, surrounded with trees and bushes, full of adventure. Along with my brother and sister, we played for hours in that creek bed, commonly playing pirates. I remember loving to shoot my sister through the trees. It drove her crazy. It's probably why I loved it. I know, remembering back through it, that my parents gave us boundaries But the one rule I remember, the one I've held on to, is that regardless of what our day held, we were not allowed to eat mulberries. Now the one problem with that is that mulberries are delicious. You've never seen a mulberry tree. I've got a picture of one I want to show you. Mulberries grow on huge trees. They were all over our backyard, and they were delicious. Now I have no idea... How many mulberries we ate that summer? And if I could take you back to that place, I could tell you we ate a ton. And on my way home, I'd always walk home, and my mom would ask if I'd eaten any mulberries. And I would probably say something like, "Mm, no, and deny it. I remember at one point my mom retelling me this story with details I didn't remember. And here's the thing about mulberries. They stain absolutely everything. They have a reddish-purple color, and they stain your fingers, they stain your mouth, and inevitably, I had stains all over my shirt. So here I am as a kid with mulberries all over my hands, mulberries all over my mouth, mulberries all over my shirt, claiming that I didn't eat any mulberries. It was so evidently evident that I was guilty, and yet I was denying it to the end the life of a child sometimes. This summer, we're teaching through the parables of Jesus as recorded in the book of Matthew. We're calling our series The Storyteller, as Jesus was a fantastic storyteller, using them as a means to teach his disciples, to train his disciples, and then to reveal the kingdom. As we walked through these first nine parables, we saw that Jesus was actually teaching kingdom-building principles as he was preparing his disciples to walk away and to lead what would then be called the church. And last week, we stepped into the 10th parable, the parable of the two sons. If you were here, you would remember. Jesus made a move away from specifically teaching kingdom principles and made a very concerted move towards correcting kingdom misunderstandings that were primarily coming from the religious people of the day, the Pharisees. He was confronting them primarily for issues of self-righteousness, for issues of pressing on to other these rules that God did not have for them, 
And what God tried to do through Jesus was to point out how badly they were missing the point of the kingdom. And if you'd allow me to say it this way, the Pharisees were standing before Jesus with mulberries all over their face. Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 21 as we continue this week to open up what will be our 11th parable, the parable of the tenants. This is the second of third parables that Jesus is teaching back to back to back to confront the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious people of the day, and specifically to confront their misunderstandings of the kingdom, specifically misunderstandings and misinterpretations that are still being pressed on us today. Last week we walked through the parable of the two sons. Jesus challenged them on the issues of authority and righteousness, pointing out that it is not our righteousness that gains us entrance into the kingdom, but rather it's the righteousness that is attributed to us through believing in Jesus Christ, believing in Jesus Christ that gains us entrance into the kingdom, or put more plainly, it's not our good works, it's not our good deeds, it's not our being a good person that will get us into heaven. It is only believing in Jesus and believing that Jesus was the only way. This is how Jesus confronts these Pharisees who felt like their good works could get them in. Jesus shows them that there's a better way and it's believing and it's the only way, pointing out that tax collectors and prostitutes would be in the kingdom. It's not on moral authority. It's on belief. So as we walk into this parable of the tenants, following that, Jesus continues teaching in verse 33, and this is what he says. Hear another parable. Jesus is giving them another word picture to describe the kingdom. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now, culturally, in that time, this would have been a pretty common situation. All of the hearers, all the Jewish people of the time would have absolutely been able to follow it. There was a master who wanted to make an investment. So he built a vineyard, knowing that it would take years before it would become profitable. But he did it right. He put a fence around it. He built a wine press in it so that it would be functional. He built a tower so that it would be protected. He built a vineyard so that it would be profitable. And he set apart some people to work at it. He found workers to work the field while he was gone. And then he entrusted them to do the work. Nobody would have missed that. In verse 34, when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And this also would have been a common practice. You lean in, actually the Mishnah has varieties of teachings on this basically suggesting that if a landowner goes more than three years without requesting payment from his tenants, then they could claim ownership over the land. Therefore, a landowner would go every year, and you see that in this parable. He was exerting his ownership, and yet these tenants were not interested in the master's authority. The story continues. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And again he sent two other servants, more than the first. And they did the same to them. See, this is the part of the story that they would not have been expecting. Here comes the teaching moments. 
verse 37, finally he sent a son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the man, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And so they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Now this is a pretty challenging story in any culture. But if you step into the Jewish culture, you wouldn't be able to miss anything that Jesus was saying here. See, when Jesus speaks of a picture of a master in a vineyard, the language he uses would have been stolen from Isaiah 5. Stolen being the word, because it's his to write, he takes it. He takes explicit pictures from Isaiah 5, picturing the nation of Israel as a vineyard, God as the master, and people wouldn't have been able to miss that shows up in three or four other psalms as well. And much like the master in the parable, God sent many to warn the Israelites. Many who were rejected, many who were beaten, and many were killed. And the writer of the book of Hebrews alludes to these messengers in his first couple of sentences. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says this, Long ago, and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom all things he created the world. You start to see the parable laid out, don't you, through the writer of Hebrews? God sent many messengers, many messengers. They were all rejected. And finally, he sends his son, the heir. You can't miss the imagery. So finally, sending the, the master sending his son, And this is language they would have picked up on. They wouldn't have missed that Jesus called himself the Son of God as three different times in this gospel alone. Matthew records times and opportunities that refer to Jesus as God's Son. Most importantly, his baptism. When God the Father spoke verbally, and Peter confirms this in his own letter, saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. When you consider this parable, and you consider the reality of this parable, one of the striking things is that the tenants did not deny that it was the master's son that showed up. No, in fact, they killed him because he was the master's son. It it shows us that they were rejecting his authority, not who he was. And we'll continue to lean into that. So Jesus, this wise and poignant storyteller, brings them to the same place that Nathan brought David in verse 40. He asks them a question. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? What should the master do? How should he react? You beat his servants, you killed his son, And just like David in the Old Testament, the Pharisees bring condemnation now on themselves, saying this. They said to him, verse 41, he would put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus tells this story pointedly in such a way that points out their misgivings And there's some reality to it we've got to lean into. For in fact, the owner of the vineyard is coming. He's told us he's coming. 
what will he do with the tenants? Friends, there's a reality in this passage, in this parable of judgment. Just like I got spanked for eating mulberries. The Pharisees are going to be held accountable for their misleadings in the kingdom. And the crazy part is, they seem to know it. And yet they didn't repent, even as the previous parable pointed out. They were given opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent, to acknowledge the Son, and yet they never did. Romans 9, 10, and 11 speak greatly to this. The Jewish people denying their Savior and then being cut off. Romans eleven twenty through 21 says this. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. And if you lean into that Romans 9, 10, 11, you find very clearly that these branches of unbelief are cut off. And in its place, God grafts in Gentile believers. He gives it to other branches who will be faithful. And yet, even Paul notes that this doesn't make the Jewish people hopeless. Because he points out two verses later that even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in too. For God has the power to graft them in again. God takes those who believe and grafts them in the place of those who pursue self-righteousness. And Jesus continues to respond to them, quoting Psalm 118, saying this, Have you never read in the Scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus says to those that kept the law, to those that kept the Scriptures, have you never even read them? What an offensive statement to rule keepers. Therefore I tell you, Jesus says in verse 33, and he makes a strong statement here, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And we're reminded just as we learned in the last parable, that our self-righteousness, our good fruits, will not get us into the kingdom. Jesus makes it more poignant in verse 44. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And, if, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Pointing out very strongly to you and to me that if this is a pathway we want to follow, it will destroy us just as it was going to destroy the chief priests and Pharisees. In verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is the parable of the tenants. Jesus telling poignant stories to rebuke misinformation and misinterpretations of kingdom principles. And here, Jesus lays flat before these Pharisees in their faces that their self-righteousness is fruitless and that there will be judgment. So what do we do with this principle? What do we do with this parable on it? 
the first thing I think we have to consider is what were the tenants called to do? When the master builds a vineyard, puts a fence around it, puts in a wine press and towers, he has a plan. What did he intend for the tenants then to do? See, he entrusted them with this vineyard, and he left them to produce a fruit, a fruit not entirely for themselves, but a fruit for the master. Now, they evidently would have benefited from it, but the fruit wasn't theirs. It belonged to the master. And this is the first indicting part of this story. Because I think when we consider this parable, when we consider the lives of the Pharisees, when we consider the words of the book of Romans, we need to appreciate that we too have been entrusted to do a work. That when Jesus took out workers of the field who were not obedient, who were unbelieving, he chose to put in others. He grafted in new vines. We need to see that we too have been entrusted to do a work. That our faith isn't just accept Jesus and go on in your merry way. Now Jesus said, follow me. Become my disciples. Friends, we live in a culture that has said, if you walk down the aisle, if you've been baptized, good enough. Lead your life as if nothing changed. And that's not what Jesus said to his followers, was it? No, Jesus said, follow me. And they gave up things. They walked away from things. It radically transformed their lives. Because they understood that their lives were not for their profit. It was not for their good. But it was for His. Because ultimately they found that following Him was worth more than following themselves. And again, this is the problem with the religious people of the, their day. For them it became about having power. For them it became about having high moral authority. For them, it became about doing all the right outward things and holding it over people's heads as if they were right. They worked for themselves. And isn't that easy for us to fall into? We can claim the name of Jesus Christ and yet still be rule followers, still be self-righteous, still claim a high moral authority that allows us to look down our noses at people who are not like us, not gifted like we are, and miss, absolutely miss the gospel. Miss the power it should have in my life. Miss the power it should have in the lives around us. When we turn to self-righteousness and rule-following, rather than appreciating that we were built, we were created, and we were saved to be sent out into the field as workers to produce a fruit for Him and not for ourselves. Friends, we don't appreciate how absolutely dangerous self-righteousness is. We don't appreciate that when we make it about us when we make it about our work, our glory, that we're actually rebelling against a holy God. I want us to listen to the words of Romans 1. And I want us to heed the words of Romans 1. 
Because to be frank with you, most people read Romans 1 and they've got one application and it's not the one the Bible has. Romans 1 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now do you know that's talking about us? Don't push that out onto other people. That's our ungodliness. That's our unrighteousness. That's our suppression of the truth. We're guilty of it. I'm guilty of it. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, And his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Friends, do not project this out onto the world without first taking your task, yourself to task on it. That we can be just as absolutely guilty about putting away the honor of God, not seeking to honor Him, acknowledge Him, or thank Him, rather thinking it is all about me, all about us, all about we. And when we do that, we are futile in our thinking. And we are foolish. And we're pursuing idols. See, this passage in Romans 1 declares the fact that we're all guilty. As the Bible declares over and over and over and over again, something, friends, we should never move past. We are guilty. As we walked through the, one of the early parables, we talked about the parable of the debtor as the, the one man owed billions upon billions of dollars. Because of that, he should have walked away with a mindset that he was forgiven. Instead, he walked away with a mindset that he was entitled. That's the mistake we make. We think we deserve. We think we're owed. Rather than appreciating that we've been forgiven everything What Romans 1 says to us is though we're guilty, in the midst of our guilt, Jesus Christ stepped into it and forgave us of our sins. The gospel in Romans 12 at the end of it transforms our mind to a new understanding, to a renewed mind, to a new life. I would remind you that when Jesus tells this parable There's a truth here that reflects the same Romans 1 mentality. The tenants in the field knew who the Son was. They didn't deny who He was. At no point did they say or argue, this isn't the Son of the Master. No, that wasn't their argument. Their argument was, we don't want the Master. We don't want His Son Let's get rid of them. They rejected him. 
Claiming to be wise, Paul said, they became fools. And we can fall into the same trap about the kingdom. Secondly, we need to consider the fruit of their work. It's part of the parable here. It has often been said that religion is man's attempt to please God. And yet the writer of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews 11.6, And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Friends, as we've walked through these kingdom principles, it should become evident and clear that we cannot earn our way in. That our good deeds will never equate our bad deeds. That as good of a person as you could seek to be, it is not good enough to get you into heaven. It is only in believing in Jesus Christ. It is only in believing that His death covers your sin. It is only in faith that you please God. That's why the tax collectors and the prostitutes get in. Because they're morally bankrupt, but believed. God's interested in morally bankrupt people who believe. Where we miss it is that we don't think we're morally bankrupt. And yet we are. I am. I'll testify about me. We we can become self-promoters. We can become self-righteousness. We can think that we're all that. And when we do so, we deny the power of the gospel to step into our lives, to renew us, to redeem us, to make us what we're not and can't be. The Pharisees were self-righteous. And in their self-righteousness, they were not producing kingdom fruit. And they were punished for it. And they will be punished for it. Make no mistake about it, the master of the field is coming back. And as we've walked through these parables, Jesus has been walking his disciples down the path of kingdom principles to show them what it looks like to produce kingdom fruit. So each week we've been calling us to this, to be kingdom builders, that we would be generous sowers. Doesn't mean you have to be a talented sower. Just means you have to be generous. Doesn't mean you have to know all the answers. Just means you need to try. Be generous sowers of the kingdom. That we would press in on sowing even when the fruit doesn't seem faithful, even when it doesn't seem worth it. That we would take heart even when it's difficult to know that our God, our King, Jesus, wins in the end and he is building his kingdom all over the earth and to know that whatever it costs us the kingdom is worth it that jesus values the one so much that he'd leave the 99 to know that he cares about the lost and that's some of the fruit that we're called to be about to pursue those who don't know him to make him known why he presses in and teaches that forgiveness is a testimony that we've been forgiven and a primary tool for showing the gospel. Friends, as Jesus has walked through these kingdom principles, he's showing you the path to a fruit-bearing life. And he's rejecting the religious 
Pharisees of the day who had built their own path about their own morality, their own rules, their own self-righteousness. And it was empty, foolish, and broken. So as we've walked through these parables, Jesus is making it plain and clear to us the Gospel. That it's ours to believe. It's ours to cling to. And it's ours to dispense. Next week, Jesus takes it even further with the parable of the great banquet. And we'll see how even in eternity, when God calls together all those who He'd have come, it's not always the pretty, the wise, and those who've got it together that get invited to the banquet. We'll walk through that next week. Let me pray for us. Father, as we've walked through these parables, you're giving us a sense of kingdom principles, but you're also teaching us what the kingdom isn't. What the kingdom isn't built on. And it's not built on my rule following. And it's not built on me having a right moral life. It's not about me checking all the boxes as if I could get all the right stuff right. Now the kingdom is about believing in Jesus Christ and believing in the sufficiency of His sacrifice on my behalf and on our behalf. That believing in Him, though we may be morally bankrupt and broken, He takes us in and makes us heirs to the kingdom. That He renews us, He transforms us, He makes us like His Son so that we would reflect His Son's glory. Father, I pray that You would do that in our lives. That we'd lean further and further into the Gospel. Father, we love You so much. We are so thankful for Your Son. It's in His name we pray. Amen.